come to hear that word of our living God will be in Job chapter 38 today. Job 38, if you would look for that in your scripture, your Bibles. And as you are arriving there, join me in prayer. Mighty and holy and loving and perfect God, help us to hear your voice today. And as we encounter you and as we hear from you, help us to be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, so that all that we do and all that we are and all that we say might bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Job 38. Job is a uh, difficult book to preach just one uh, portion from, and the uh, impulse is to read through the whole book of Job to get the, uh, the full impression and weight of what's happening here. We'll try to capture that in a more succinct fashion in just a few moments, so I'll only read a little bit for you. Uh, Job 38, beginning at verse 1. The Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself, because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Do you know how its dimensions were determined and who did the surveying? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all of the angels shouted for joy? Who defined the boundaries of the sea as it burst from the womb, as I clothed it with clouds and thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, thus far, no further will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear, caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you ever told the daylight to spread to the ends of the earth and to bring an end to the night's wickedness? For the features of the earth take shape as the light approaches and the dawn is robed in red. The light disturbs the haunts of the wicked, and it stops the arm that is raised in violence. Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you walked about and explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it, if you know. And God continues in this vein for another two chapters. And then in chapter 40, verse 3, Job finally responds to God. And Job replied to the Lord, I'm nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will put my hand over my mouth in silence. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. And God comes back with one more round of questions. And then in verse 42, in chapter 42, Job's final words. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. You ask, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? Well, it's, it's me. <laughs> and I was talking about things that I did not understand things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had heard about you before, 
but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. This morning, uh, I want to uh, think with you about the indifference of God. The indifference of God. How do you think about who God is? When somebody says the word God to you or names the name of God, what are the images, what are the ideas, what are the assumptions that come into your mind? How do you think about God? Uh, Social scientists, both Christian and religious and secular, have uh, been wanting to know the answers to those questions for a long time. How do people think about God? What do we really believe about who God is? And uh, there have been a number of um, really uh, rigorous, in-depth, and uh, long-lasting surveys that have been seeking to learn uh, what it is that Americans really believe about who God is. And one such study uh, looked at teenagers. This is the next generation coming, right? The teenagers. And uh, the social scientists gathered about 3,000 responses. And this is basically what they learned. Uh, Teenagers in America, many, many, many of them sitting in churches today, will say something like this. This is what, you know, God exists. There is a God, and God created the world, and he watches over life on earth. Second thing is that God mostly wants you to be a nice person. God wants you to be kind. God wants you to be fair. God wants you to be a good person. And the purpose of life, the the central goal of life that God has for you is for you to be happy and for you to feel good about who you are. And if you do all of those things, if you believe that God created the world, if you're a nice person, if you're pretty good, and if you are mostly happy and feel good about who you are, then at the end of your life, when you die, you'll go to heaven. And this was the sort of composite sketch of what these 3,000 teenagers believed about who God is. And even the secular researchers stepped back and recognized, sort of catching their breath, saying, this picture of God really doesn't even resemble the God that we find in Christianity. This is not the God of the Scriptures. And in the Scriptures, we have things like sin and salvation, and we have a Christ who comes to save us. And instead, most of these teens in this study believed in some form of Uh, Try to be a really nice person, and God will reward you, and try to be really happy so that your life works out well. And these researchers gave this the technical name of uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic, to try to be good. Therapeutic, try to feel good. Deism, God is out there, but not really involved. So this series, uh, beginning today, I'm calling it a little mini-series. And uh, in this mini-series starting today, what I would like to do is to offer a picture of God who is just a little bit different than that. Uh, In this little mini-series over the next few weeks, I want to uh, look with you a little bit more closely at the self-revealed character, the nature of God. So this uh, series isn't going to be a self-help series. It's not going to be sort of a practical how-to series. Uh, uh, It it may not have the feel of, I know what I'm going to go and do today uh, based on that. But my hope is that as we come to the text and as we learn together in community, that we will encounter uh, our living God in a fresh way. And at the core of my bones, I believe that when we encounter the living God, 
everything changes. So this is a series about the doctrine of God. Who is God? This is also a series from a Reformed perspective. As a Reformed church, we have some uh, unique flavors that influence how we think about the nature of who God is, as the, the way that we think about the doctrine of God. R.C. Sproul wrote several years ago, Reformed theologians see the doctrine of God as informing the whole scope of Christian theology. That's one of the reasons why Calvinists tend to focus so much on the Old Testament. We're concerned about the character of God as defining everything. Our understanding of Christ, our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of salvation. We turn to the Old Testament because it's one of the most important sources that you find anywhere in the universe on the nature and character of God. Reformed Christians tend to take the Old Testament very seriously because it's such a vivid revelation of the majesty of God. And in your hearing, just underline that term, majesty. Right? We see the majesty of God revealed. Our stop in the Old Testament today is our stop in the book of Job. Job is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, uh, writings in the Bible. This is a very ancient story. And one of the reasons that this ancient story of Job has endured is because it's asking timeless questions. It's asking the questions that we are asking ourselves all of the time. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do people who work so hard and do all of the right things suffer? Uh, is there justice in the world? Is there a meaning to the suffering that we experience? What is God like? These are the questions that the book of Job invites us to ask, to probe. So the book of Job unfolds as a series of conversations. Uh, first up is this conversation uh, between Satan and God. And in this conversa uh, conversation, Satan, the accuser, comes to God and says, um, you know, your people only love you because you do nice things for them. Look at, uh, you know, all of, all of the people who worship you only worship you because you take such good care of them. And God basically points to Job and he says, look, you can take away all of this good stuff. You can take it away from him. And he'll still love him. And so Satan is set free. And he begins to do his best. Job, as you know in the story, uh, in very rapid succession, uh, loses his business. He loses all of his investments. He loses his uh, sources of income. He loses his fortune. He loses his family. He loses his reputation. He loses most of his friends. He loses his health. He loses his peace. And as Job faces one calamity after the next, God is silent. The story of Job continues in a series of conversations 
much like the sorts of conversations that we have. I don't understand why this is happening. I don't know how I will be able to bear up. How do I make sense of this? And a few of Job's remaining friends come alongside of him. And after Job declares his innocence, he says he did nothing to reverse this fortune of his life. He says he's angry and he wants God to account for himself. He wants God to explain this cruel treatment. And while the friends listen, God is silent. Instead of God speaking, we get chapter after chapter of these friends. Job's friends come alongside him and they recite to Job the orthodoxy of the day. And in their orthodox response to Job, thinking they know the mind of God, Job's friends say, if this is happening to you, if you are suffering, if you are losing all of these good things, that is a sure sign that you are in the wrong. There is some sin in your life that you need to unearth and confess, and then you will be okay. And each time, after each speech, Job protests his innocence. I didn't do anything to deserve this. But God remains silent until 37 chapters pass. And then, here, finally, in chapter 38, Job hears the voice of God. And when God finally speaks, he says something like this.
Who do you think you are, Job? Look at all of this. I am God. And I hold galaxies in the palm of my hand. And I occupy atomic space. I hold it all. I am everything. I am everywhere. It is all mine. And the text tells us that God speaks this word out of the whirlwind. The the term there is the term for a howling storm, a, 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 a tempest. This is not a calm response. It's not pastoral. It's raw and undomesticated and dangerous and uncontrollable and all God. Readers of Job have sometimes suggested that this amounts to a non-answer. That God is utterly non-responsive to Job's inquiry at best. And maybe even verges on being a cosmic bully at worst. But I want to suggest this morning that there's actually grace here. That this is a gracious response and all of its ferocious and untamed majesty and power and potency that this is full of grace. And the grace that we experience is actually seen in Job's response. The raging storm inside of Job is calmed as it meets this whirlwind of God. In other words, God never gives Job an answer to his question. Instead, God gives Job God himself. And that's always what God gives. God doesn't come to us and say, I have an answer for you. I have a promise to give to you. I have an explanation for you. What God gives is God himself. It's God who shows up. And Job says in his very last words in chapter 42, Now I have seen you with my own eyes. And he's at peace. And it's enough. From the perspective of the Reformed tradition, we might say that what we see here in Job is an encounter with God's majesty, an encounter with his grandeur, his power, that is especially seen in nature. John Calvin writes, with what clear manifestations his might draws us to contemplate him by his nod alone, sometimes to shake heaven with thunderbolts, to burn everything with lightnings, to kindle the air with flashes, sometimes to disturb it with various sorts of storms, and then at his pleasure to clear them away in a moment. Calvin is captivated by the majestic power of God. Sometimes that majestic power is described as God's transcendence. God transcends everything that he has created. Sometimes God is described as being wholly other. God is not like us. He is not like you. He is not like me. 
is not our friend and our buddy. He is wholly other. Sometimes it's described as a consuming holiness of God. In classical Reformed theology, we use two words. We, call, we, we, we use the term the immutability of God and the impassibility of God. The immutability of God means that God never changes. And the impassibility of God means that God isn't ruled by his passions. He doesn't change his mind because his feelings have changed. He's not driven by passion. Or in the language that I'm using today, Job encounters the indifference of God. The Westminster Confession describes God in these terms. There is but one, only, living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. God's concern for his own glory. The indifference of God. I know the term rubs the wrong way. It's intended to. Rubs me the wrong way. The indifference of God. We, we, we say God is love. That doesn't seem very indifferent. Uh, we say God is gracious. God is so loving and gracious that he pursues us to the very ends of the earth in the person of Jesus. And he's entering willingly into suffering in order to redeem us. That doesn't seem indifferent. And yet, in the scriptures, there is also this element of God who is wholly other, immutable, impassable, transcendent, majestic, and yes, maybe even indifferent to anything but his own glory. We see it maybe in a glimpse on Mount Sinai. Do you remember when the Hebrew people first encamp around the foot of the mountain and God gives instructions and says, I am going to camp up on top of the mountain, put a barrier between me and my people, and if anybody crosses the barrier, what happens? What happened? They die. Maybe it's seen in 2 Samuel when Uzzah reaches out as the Ark of the Covenant is wobbling just to steady it, just to help, just to be a nice guy. And what happens to old Uzzah? He dies. He's struck dead. Maybe it's seen in Isaiah 6 where the seraphim are singing to the majesty of God and the very presence of God. And in order for Isaiah to be commissioned, his mouth has to be burned with a hot coal. We see it for sure in the prophet Habakkuk. Have you read the story of Habakkuk? Do you know how that is framed? If you look at the uh, first chapter of Habakkuk, he says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Habakkuk is confronting the, in, the, the indifference of God. Violence, I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see this sin and misery all around me? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed and useless, and there's no justice even in the courts. 
The wicked outnumber the righteous, and justice is perverted with bribes and trickery. Habakkuk brings this to God, pleads before God. And you know what God says back? He says, you think this is bad? You ought to see what happens when I bring the Babylonians in. The indifference of God. We certainly see it in the story of Job. For 37 long chapters, God is silent in the face of Job's suffering. For all practical intents and purposes, God ignores him. So how do we hold those two together? Our loving God and the indifference of this holy, other, transcendent God. Have you ever been to a movie and experienced technical difficulties in the course of that movie? Uh, Have you ever gone into a movie theater and maybe uh, the image will play on the screen, but the soundtrack is lost? And all you're left with is just watching the lips and trying to figure out what's happening. Or maybe it's just the reverse. Maybe you can hear the sound in the background, but the picture isn't right. Or maybe the sound and the picture are out of sync. Have you ever gone into a movie theater and said, well, I couldn't see anything happening on the screen, but I could hear everything, so I feel satisfied that I got my money's worth. Nobody would say, right? Have you ever done that? We wouldn't do that. We're all good consumers, right? We want everything. And what I want to suggest is that holding these two aspects of God together is something like that. It's something like having both the sound and the image in a theater. It's something like having both aspects of who God is, not in opposition to one another, but working together to present one experience, one single unified encounter with this living God, a God who defies easy categories and boxes and explanations. In fact, what we see in Job is that God's apparent indifference is actually just another expression of God's gracious love. It turns out that this encounter with God is exactly what Job needs to shock him back out of himself. Calvin uses the term to draw us out of ourselves. We're drawn out of our self-focus. Job is drawn out of his self-preoccupation. The way that sometimes you've had the experience of being drawn out of yourself, maybe after a particularly challenging or stressful day, you step outside at night and in the, in the clear midnight sky, you see the, 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 the panoply of the, the, the Milky Way above you. And in that moment, you're drawn out of yourself. And there's a perspective and a scaling that happens. And you realize that there's something bigger, something more immense than you. Maybe you've been present at the birth of a new baby. You've seen the first breaths, or you've seen the last breaths. And there's some sense of awe at the beginning and the ending of life. And in that moment, you're just drawn out of yourself a little bit. Maybe it's being caught up in a Beethoven symphony. Maybe it is traveling and seeing a majestic and expansive range of mountains capped with snow. 
Maybe it's watching a perfectly executed play down on the field. Whatever it is, whatever beauty, whatever majesty, whatever awe captures us, draws us out of ourselves just a little bit. And all of those things are indifferent to us. The mountains in the Milky Way don't need our permission to be majestic. Ernst Trolch wrote that the more we focus on the majesty of God, the less we're focused on ourselves. And for Calvin, the ultimate concern of life is not for a self-centered personal salvation, but our ultimate concern is for the glory of God. In other words, God is not bending to you. God is not here to serve you. God is not here to answer you. God is not here to satisfy you. God is not here to cater to your needs. The chief end of God is not to glorify man and enjoy him forever. And that sounds harsh to ears that are tuned to a moralistic, therapeutic deism. But it's ultimately what saves us. It's ultimately what saves us. Self-focus and self-preoccupation and concern for our own needs and wants and fears and for justice and for all of, all of that, all of that turning towards self that we do. Jesus says ultimately all of that inward focus, that self-focus act ultimately collapses in on itself. Life can't sustain that. That's why Jesus says whoever tries to hold on to his life will lose it. But then he says whoever loses his, his life, his life will be saved. When we meet God in all of his majesty and glory and maybe even in his indifference, we are drawn up out of ourselves. And like Job, we find that that is enough. Will you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, thank you for showing us both a loving Father and for allowing us to know a God who is so wholly other that we can experience his holiness and his majesty and his power almost as a force of indifference. Lord, help us to lose ourselves more and more as we give ourselves to your Father in heaven. Lord, thank you for the grace and the healing and the hope that we find in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we respond to God's word this morning, as Alyssa mentioned at the beginning of our worship time, we are uh, observing uh, Worldwide Communion Sunday. And so we have a, a liturgy found in your bulletin today that helps us to connect uh, to the global church celebrating today around the table. Christ invites us all to this holy feast. As we gather this morning, we remember our sisters and brothers from above and below the equator, from the north and from down under, from every time zone around the globe. As today's sunlight inches across land and sea, Christians gather to celebrate their place in God's family. All are invited and all are welcome. Come, for the meal is ready. To God be the glory, great things he has done. 
prepare ourselves to partake of this holy meal, let us pray. Healing God, we come before you broken, yet seeking wholeness, isolated, yet seeking community, overwhelmed, yet seeking simplicity, shamed, yet seeking grace. God of justice, we come before you selfish, yet seeking a generous heart, arrogant, yet seeking humility, responsible for injustices, yet seeking forgiveness. God of peace, we come before you afraid, yet seeking assurance, agitated, yet seeking serenity, angry, yet seeking a forgiving heart. Knowing that through Christ all things are made new, we come to this communion table to be recreated through the bread and cup and to be renewed in our faith and commitment. Loving and gracious.